How many of you were in this morning's session? All right. And these, in uh, these, when I present at workshops and things like that, I hate it when I have to introduce myself because uh, you have to start out with all these I statements, <laughs> and I, it, it just, it's just a tough way to start out a presentation. But I want to tell you a little bit about my background so that you'll understand that I know a little bit about the subject matter. So um, I have about uh, 25 years of experience working for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in various capacities. I started out as a teacher, and then I became a uh, school principal, and I ran a boarding school for five years, and I worked at the North American Division for 12 years where I was the director of a department on philanthropy. And I don't know if you knew that, but the church has a department on philanthropy. It's still there to serve you. It's called Philanthropic Service for Institutions, or PSI. I was the executive director of PSI for 12 years. So um, from there, I left and I, I went to a hospital where I became a, the president of their foundation. Did that for a couple years. And now I'm at the University of Texas at Brownsville, down along the coast, right next to Mexico. I look out my back door and I can see Mexico in my back door. So um, that's how far south. And I'm the um, Associate Vice President for Development at the University of Texas at Brownsville and Texas Southmost College. And so what I, what I do is I spend most of my time uh, raising money and working with alumni and foundations and corporations. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my experience with philanthropy. Um, I never thought I would have anything to do with fundraising at all, ever. Amen. I mean, <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know, I was a boys dean and taught PE. That was my first career. And then when the principal left uh, Platte Valley Academy, they asked me to become the, the principal. And uh, my first day in the office, you know, I'd never been on the other side of the principal's desk, and I'm sitting in the, the only swivel high back chair I'd ever been in. This is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> I've risen to such power at such an early age. And uh, I was just 29. And then the treasurer walks in my door carrying a stack of papers, and this is the transition of power meeting, and I'm scared to death, you know. And so she, she starts laying them out, and she says, well, and here's one. You need to raise $10,000 in the next 30 days, or we lose a $10,000 challenge grant. And so, you know, for someone who grew up doing nothing but uh, selling light bulbs and candy and doing car washes and things like that, and was in charge of a gymnasium budget that was about $300 a year, it was quite intimidating to have to raise $10,000. And so I did the first thing that anybody would do. I called up and asked for an extension on the, on the challenge grant program, and they told me no. And, and so when I asked them, well, why not? And they said, well, we, we'll help you raise the money. And so they told me about how direct mail works and sent me samples, and I wrote a direct mail piece use my faculty and staff to fold it, stuff it, stamp it, and get it out in a day, and in two weeks we raised $15,000. And so, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I figured out that there's something to this. You know, there, there's a reason why you can write a letter to people and they'll stick a check in and they'll mail it back to you, and I had to figure out what that was. And then, and then another thing that was um, 
intrigued me is that every piece of literature that would come across my desk from any educational association or organization would talk about scholarships, um, capital campaigns, endowments, and things like that. And I thought, wow, there's something going on here. I didn't know anything about philanthropy. And then I ended up uh, getting a scholarship from PSI to go to the fundraising school, and my life kind of changed. By the time I left Platte Valley, we had 47% of our alumni giving a gift back to the school every year. And uh, so I've, I've fallen in love with philanthropy, and I'll probably spend the rest of my career in it. And um, so that's a little bit about where I'm coming from, and, and I have a deep, deep love for philanthropy. Uh, there's very few things that, that can top it in terms of uh, the power to change. Uh, love would be number one, and we know the source of love, okay. But right behind it is philanthropy. Philanthropy uh, uh, puts, many times puts uh, love in action. In fact, if you know what uh, philanthropy means in Greek, it means um, the love of mankind. And so when we think of the word philanthropy, it's not just the exchange of money, but it has something to do with the exchange of love between people. And it doesn't just have to be money. Right now in our culture, philanthropy is, is, is quantified in terms of dollars. So um, I love philanthropy and, and I, I have about 30 slides and a lot of different information for you. This presentation is designed to kind of give you an overview of fundraising. Um, I would encourage you to, if you have questions, that you might write them down. I'm going to try to go through some of these slides, and as I go through them, uh, some of your questions might get answered, because I'm going to kind of give you a nice big picture of how this thing works. And so if I give you a, a good overview of how philanthropy works, then maybe I'll answer your questions as I'm going through. And then at the last five or 10 minutes, we'll, we'll have a Q&A and, and we'll just talk about some of the issues that you're facing and if you have any questions for me. Now, um, any questions before I get started? One or two? Do you have an extra PowerPoint? I don't. I, I, actually, I just have this one. You can have this one. And uh, my email address will be up on the screen, and you can get it at the end of the presentation. And uh, if you don't have the, the PowerPoint presentation as a handout, um, basically you can email me a note, and I'll, and I'll email you back the presentation if you'd like to have it. It's nothing, nothing sacred. All right, let's get started. The, the, the bottom line is, is I want to uh, talk about why some organizations um, are strong and when others reduce their services and uh, close their doors. Why does that happen? Why do some people tend to thrive and other organizations always tend to struggle? And that's, and that's the bottom line here. Um, first of all, you have to understand that with fundraising, there, there are reasons why people give to organizations. And people are going to give to your organization uh, for a lot of reasons other than you need the money. In fact, uh, the fact that you need money has very little to do with the reason why people will give it to you. The reason why most people will give you money is because you're accomplishing something wonderful with your ministry. 
you have to realize that in the in the U.S. and in Canada, I don't know what the Canada exact numbers or Canadian numbers are. In the United States, it's estimated there's like one and a half million nonprofit organizations. And as you know, when you go down to the ASI Convention Center, there's a lot of ministries there. That's the tip of the iceberg. You're you're competing with 1.5 million nonprofit organizations that are out there looking for the philanthropic dollar. And so there's a lot of good causes. So, so quit thinking that because you're a good cause, people are gonna give money to you. There's other reasons involved. Um, the, other, the other thing is you have to realize is that people are going to uh, give to vision. In other words, people want to know what it is that you want to accomplish and what you will accomplish. It doesn't mean that they won't give to need um, because every organization does have needs, but they're not going to give to needy organizations because when the, you have a needy organization, what happens is the, the donors tend to think, well, why aren't other people supporting this? Um, and a lot of the fundraising I've done over the years, I'll approach a donor and I'll say, would you consider uh, supporting us with this type of gift? And they'd say, well, who else is giving? And that what they want to know is, is, is uh, why should I give? Uh, one of my academies that I attended, and I won't tell you which one it is, it sent me a direct mail appeal and sent me a picture of a, of a roof that had a hole in it and asked me to give a gift because they needed to repair this roof. So what do you think? I didn't give. I wonder like, all right, if I help you fix the roof, how, what's going to keep it from getting in that condition again in the first place? I felt like it was wasted money, so I didn't give to it. So you're not going to inspire anybody to give to your organization by telling them how badly things are operating in your organization. Talk about, in your, when you talk to people about giving to your organizations, try to focus in on the things that you are accomplishing and how you are changing lives and try to quantify that with real life stories, not statistics. People don't, you know, the, the numbers are important because they paint a particular picture, but the most important thing that people want to hear is, is how is it that you're changing lives and they want to hear a real life story that relates back to it. So people want to give to organizations that are successful and they don't want to give to organizations that are struggling. Realize that philanthropy is not a short-term solution to a crisis. Um, philanthropy does not work well in a crisis situation. A philanthropy is mostly about a relationship that you have with your donors. So uh, again, you cannot go to your donors and say our organization is going to, to shut down unless you give. That'll only work so many times. Uh, maybe once or twice, but those kind of things generally don't appeal to people. Uh, you also need to plan to build a systematic program, something that, that works the entire range of, of philanthropy and not just one segment of it. Um, there's a pyramid of giving, which I'm going to show to you, and then you have to think about long-term results. In other words, some of you are, are probably sitting there right now thinking, I just need some money. And um, if you just need some money, um, this, this, this presentation is only is going to be part of the, the solution. Because I can, I can tell you how to raise some money right here, right now, real quick, 
and raise a lot of it. But for those of you who want to have long-term successful fundraising and philanthropy programs, it's a matter of putting something into place that builds year after year after year and it grows and grows and grows, which is much more attractive than, than crisis fundraising. So where do you start? You have to, first of all, you have to understand as an organization uh, what your mission and vision is. I would recommend to you that if you're not doing it, that occasionally, maybe every year, every two to three years, you do some type of strategic planning where you talk about your mission and vision and make sure that your board is in the same mindset as you are in terms of where you're going as an organization. What are your big, what are your big picture items? What are you trying to accomplish? Secondly, you need to develop a plan including fundraising but not limited to fundraising and be realistic and accurate. In other words, set some goals for yourself. Say, we're going to raise this kind of money by this date and make sure that you write that down and, and describe what you want to do and how you're going to do it. And, and if you attended the session earlier this morning, I'm a big proponent of, of writing all your goals down for your organization regardless. I mean, if you have a, a direct mail, a, I mean, if you have a, a communication device that goes out, write down on a piece of paper how many times that goes out and when it goes out. And if you have a fundraising goal, write down the dollar amount you want to raise and by when. And if you um, have a visitation schedule, write down how many visits you're going to make and when you're going to get them done by. Write everything down that you have a goal for, but make your goals realistic and achievable. Determine your case. Now, the case is something that helps to, to describe to donors why it is they want to give to your organization. And I'm going to uh, go through that a little bit more later on too. Start with an annual giving program. Identify your donors. Think of a circle and build relationships. So I'm going to describe the, when I said identify your donors, think of a circle. I'm going to uh, share with you what that means in just a minute. Um, annual giving. Um, annual giving is an ongoing systematic cultivation for annual gifts. Does it it's a little bit of a misnomer. An annual giving program is what you do that uh, on a routine basis throughout the year that you're contacting your donors and asking them to give. It doesn't mean that your donors will only give once. In fact, uh, the people who are more likely to give twice in a year are the people who've already made a gift during that, that year. And there's a lot of organizations that are doing fundraising where they have monthly giving programs and that that goes on all the time too. And those of you who are in, in church settings or pastors here, you know that people give systematically. So they're used to that. So annual giving, the term is a little bit of a misnomer in that you can approach annual giving by doing monthly giving, quarterly giving, however the donor wants to do it. But it provides dollars for short term and for urgent needs. It starts the giving and accountability bit, uh, process what do I mean by uh, the giving and accountability process? The annual giving program for your organization helps you to identify where all the, the funds are going to come from for all the other type of giving programs in your organization. And if you want to know, some of you are probably a question you have is, well, where do I get the major gifts and how do I get the planned gifts? Well, those typically come from the annual giving program. That's where your prospects come for your, your major gifts and your planned gifts. So you can't do, I don't think you can do one without the other. 
you have to, you ought to at the beginning of every year identify specific goals and you should identify different projects that are important to your annual giving. So in other words, you might say is our goal for the annual fund this year is to raise $250,000 and with that goal we intend to build um, 15 churches in Africa or maybe it's to produce 250,000 brochures that we'll give out in our neighborhood. But you have to identify what your goals are for the annual fund. What will you do with those dollars? If I was at a school, I would say, we're gonna raise $250,000 and that will help scholarship 75 students to school this year. So have some goals and then, and then talk about what you're gonna do with the money that you raise through the annual fund so that when the donors are giving it, they can identify what it is they're actually giving to. The um, annual fund is, is organization-wide and there's kind of a coordinated approach through all the different uh, segments of your population. So, um, where it all begins, the annual giving programs with three main purposes, donor acquisition, donor renewal, and donor upgrades. So, um, let me see if I can uh, describe to you how it goes. If you're at a, if you're at a school, you have to identify who it is that you're gonna actually solicit. So the natural audience is who? Alumni. alumni. So you get together your alumni database and then you send a, a direct mail appeal out to all of your alumni and you ask them to give. And that's the acquisition process. You just send letters out and asking them to give to the annual fund. And remember the annual fund has identified goals and it has things that it's gonna do. You're not just asking for a gift to ask for a gift, but you're gonna tell them what it's gonna do. But what happens is, is that as you ask people to give to your school, you are in essence acquiring a donor. But if you wanna think of it as a more ethereal level, a deeper level, is, is you're not acquiring a donor, you're acquiring someone who's gonna become a partner with you in your ministry. It's, it's really deep. The people, you're asking for gifts, right? Because it's going to change some lives. But the people who are writing the checks and sending them to you, what they are thinking is, is that they're part of making something happen that they couldn't do on their own otherwise. So they believe in what you're doing. And they write you a check to support it, and they want to become part of that, so they write that check. But you've solicited all of your alumni, and what happens is, is people come out of that crowd and they are acquired in a, in a business term, they're acquired as donors. All right, does that make sense? Someone... So, you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but people like the American Cancer Society, they'll spend a million dollars on a direct mail appeal and they'll, they'll lose, you know, a million dollars in the process. They'll go negative on the direct mail appeal. Why do they do that? They acquire donors. And then the purpose is, is that once you acquire a donor, the next thing is, is that you, you, you do the donor renewal. And so the next year, you go directly to the people who were your supporters last year 
and you ask them to give again. In other words, you don't have to pay the high cost to acquire the donor. You already own, own the donor, own it in, in essence, and you already have identified somebody who has aligned their values with yours and they are already part of your mission, so you don't have to, to spend all the high dollars to acquire a donor. And then your goal is to hopefully upgrade that donor over a period of time and, and they will become more supportive of, as the years go along. I don't know, am I, am I a, are you with me or do I need to kind of explain it in a different way? Well, that's a great question, but um, you know, there's a, how you acquire donors. We're going to talk about some of the ways to acquire the donors, but there's a there's only three or four different direct ways that you can acquire a donor. Um, you can do it through direct mail. You can do it through phone work. You can do it through events and and things like that. How do you get them to give again? Well, that's the problem is a lot of people get the donor and then they forget the stewardship that is involved once you get the donor. If you, uh, as a ministry, were thinking of these people as your corporate investors in your uh, for-profit company, you would have to send out stock reports quarterly. But rarely do we send out any kind of a report to our donors quarterly about what we're achieving with the dollars that they've invested. And so the reason why a lot of organizations lose their donors after a year or two is they're doing very little to communicate with the donors what they're doing. And you have to be very aggressive about getting people to renew and to upgrade. And you're not gonna get it, to, it's not gonna happen unless you directly ask them to renew and ask them to upgrade. So there's a lot of different strategies you can use. But anyways, it's the start of the relationship, and if you think of it, of it in another way, the annual fund helps you to track where people are, helps you to keep up their address, helps you identify their phone number, helps you get their email addresses, finds out if they have a website, and it helps the communication process so that as you communicate with them, you know where they are, you know how to reach them, you know what they're doing. All right, so that's, that's kind of a, a big overview, um, how annual giving works. Well, first of all, let me, let me, let me talk about um, the bottom of this pyramid happens to be um, how an, annual giving works. This is where your annual fund is. This is all your activities, where most of your donors are gonna be in the annual fund then 20% of them are gonna be major gift donors, and then 10% of your donors are gonna be planned giving donors, okay? But in terms of where the money comes from, here's where the money comes from. 10% of it comes from your annual fund, 20% from major gifts, and 60% come, for, and your time, and your dollars should come up here in planned giving. But if, if you guys think about where you are currently and what you're doing with fundraising, I would guess most of you are spending your time right here and you're never going up here or here. And so you're missing out on where all the dollars are on these two levels. The, this level is important here. The annual fund is important here because it helps you identify who your people are and, and you know whether they have an interest in what you're doing. But where the real money is for philanthropy happens to be on the, the next two levels, not, not at the base level. 
But what happens if you cut out the, the base, base? You have cut off your, your, um, your line of, of names and relationships. So a lot of people don't want to do the, the annual fund because it's expensive. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of postage, there's printing, there's, there's a, it's a process. And if you don't invest in that process, you know, you're not going to find who your donors are. Well, you know, the annual fund is, is where all the, all the communication takes place with all your constituents. In other words, you send out direct mail appeals that communicate mission and vision. You send out um, newsletters. You're doing phones, phone calls. You're doing events. And those all throw, throw up into this category. So, yeah, I mean, the annual fund is helping to change the picture of about how people view your organizations. It's a, if you're in the marketing business, it's about selling impressions, and the more often you get in front of your, your constituents, the more they're going to think about you. So if you're not, you know, if you have a, a, a good annual fund, you're probably in your, in your donors' mailboxes or, or uh, email inboxes at least monthly or quarterly. The email, email, you should have a monthly email newsletter for your ministry, because that's cheap. Uh, we're, not, we're not completely out of the print industry, so you should have at least a, a quarterly or a biannual paper newsletter that you're mailing to people, because there's a large segment of the population who still like to hold something in their hands and read, and they don't want to print it off the internet. It just, you know, we're in a transition phase on how people are communicating right now. Um, it, it, it just depends on when you want to run it from. Whenever your calendar year is run, whether it's, you know, at our university, we run it from September 1 through August 31. That's when our annual fund is. So some people do it on a calendar year and some people do it on a fiscal year. So, you know, the, the, the point the reason why I say the annual fund is kind of a misnomer, in fact, it used to be everybody would say give to the Union College annual fund. And what, what the industry is saying is take the word annual out of it. Give, it. give to the Union College fund. Because they want the donors, they don't want the donors to sit there and say I already gave once this year. So, you know, you don't... They want people to think about giving based on need, not based on the calendar, if that makes sense. So they, they solicit them for the Union College Fund. At our university, we have the Scorpion Fund, and we ask people to give to that, and we hope to engender people to give throughout the year. So, Ken, on the upside down pyramid, you're saying 60% of your time should be focused on... S significant planned gifts and major gifts right up at the top. Yeah, this is where, if you have a mature program, most of your time should be spent up on the other end of the pyramid, because that's where your money is. We have a very, you know, you, most of you probably, I would guess, uh, how many of you have a development, director of development? Say, very few of you. So right now, if you're lucky, you're doing an annual fund at all, and you might be doing some major gifts. So 
you know, the real money happens to be in the major gifts and the plan giving. That's where the real, the real money is. Right. And the plan gifts and the major gifts may take months or even years to develop. Yeah, but it might be an issue that your board would take up on how do we go to the next level. In other words, our ministry, we see our ministry growing and doing more things in the future. And how can we come, come into more uh, dollars to accomplish more things? And it, you need to kind of take a look at some of those issues. So... It's right. I mean, it's, a, it's not always easy to hire a director of development. I would tell most of you not to do it. But you need to start thinking about how do you keep a database? How do you acquire names? How are you going to communicate with the people? How will you ask them for gifts? How will you thank them for the gifts? How will you renew the gifts? How will you determine those people who are giving annual gifts or the people who have the capacity to make major gifts? It's a, it's a pretty complicated process. Let me, let me keep going. What makes up an annual fund? You can do direct mail. You can do phone-a-thons. You can do personal solicitations for, for the annual fund. In other words, if you're at the beginning level, you might be doing personal solicitation for $500 and $1,000 gifts. That might be part of your annual fund solicitations. You can do thank-a-thons where you call your donors and thank them for their giving, that tends to engender more giving. You can do special events, you can do newsletters, you can do family campaigns. Family campaigns don't necessarily mean you're soliciting a family, but what it means is, is that you've figured out a way to create families of donors based on their giving interest. Um, for instance, uh, you might have a, a family campaign made up of your staff, you could do a family campaign made up of your board. You can do a family campaign made up of prior donors. If you can, you can, if you had, uh, if you were at a school and you had, you could identify people who took music, you might be able to create a family campaign of those people who love music and then solicit them for a gift for the music program. So you create, the more family campaigns that you can create, the more, uh, successful you're going to be because you can break it down into smaller segments and create more affinity with giving so that it's more direct. Alright? Um, you can do grant writing, you can do employee matching programs, and you can also uh, employee matching gift programs. So uh, that's another component a lot of people don't even look at and that is is that you have to ask people whether their employer will match their gifts as well. A lot of people work for organizations that do. Um, for instance, I think Microsoft, if you have some of your supporters who work for Microsoft and you write a check, Microsoft would probably match it. There's a whole art and art to doing that kind of fundraising as well. Let me give you an annual giving sample organization chart. I don't know if you can see this, but but what it says here is, is that you create a goal for your annual giving. This one says 100,000. And then what happens is, is that you try to divide up that annual giving goal among the many different groups. For instance, you might have a goal of a board or a staff campaign of 100% of your board giving and you're gonna raise $10,000. And this also says tributes and memorial gifts, 20,000 special. Um, Phonathon, 
special project phone 35,000, direct mail 25, and a golf tournament 10. So you can see how this organization broke down their annual fund and, and made goals based up on the different groups that they could raise money for. So, you know, try to have as many goals identified as you possibly can. Phonathons and thankathons. Um, I was talking to the, the, the uh, lady that runs the, the annual fund for the University of Texas in Austin, and they have 400,000 uh, alumni. And how they acquire donors is they do it all through the phone. But they, they, uh, they call everybody. So that, that, they find that that's the very best way to acquire our donors is to get them on the phone and they use students to do it. So you know, a lot of you are in ministries, you might do it in different ways. You could have uh, your board members make phone calls. You can have staff make the phone calls. Uh, if, you have, if you've been around long enough and your database is deep enough, you can even uh, farm it out. You can uh, hire a consulting company that comes in and does your phone-a-thon for you. The, the, the problem is, is if you pay someone else to do it for you, it generally costs you about half of what, it, of what they raised to do it. So it's a little bit expensive, but um, I mean you have to understand how the business model works. And uh, I will tell you that um, the phone systems are a very expensive way to do it, but it's hard to tell people no when you get them on the phone. And so they're more likely to give you a gift on the phone. Uh, the University of Texas at Austin also, the, the highest rate of return or renewal gifts does not come through the phone program though. It comes through direct mail and online giving because people get a renewal for their, for their annual gift and people would rather get online and, and make a gift online or uh, make it through direct mail than taking another phone call. So you have to find out what works for you. Um, the, uh, the benefits of phonathons are that they're more personal and they're cost effective, more cost effective than mail solicitation. And they're really good to gather information. In other words, a lot of these phone programs, what happens is they have the donor record in front of them and as they're talking to them, they can um, determine birthdays and um, things like that, I mean, phone numbers, email addresses, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of phonathons for raising money, and I even think it's worth it to spend half of the money that you raise to, to acquire the donor. It's a, it seems a, a little bit outrageous, but remember the next year, your cost for that donor is gonna be down at uh, 10 cents on the dollar instead of 50 cents on the dollar. Well, snail mail, um, I mean, snail mail is uh, still very effective in fundraising. Uh, you get two to three, well, anywhere from a half percent to two or three percent response, it's considered good. Most of you guys in ministries, you have a very defined audience. You might get as high as 10 or 15 percent of your, your people to make a gift back. So, so the regular direct mail for the ministries here should be very effective form in raising money still. The e-philanthropy e or giving online is still currently a, a mechanism as another way to, to facilitate easy giving 
by donors and the only organizations that are really truly reaping huge results from e-philanthropy or for online giving happen to be those people who are dealing with crisis situations like the Red Cross and people when there's a, a tsunami and, and hurricanes and things like that. People you know, will flock to the internet. You're seeing a huge wave of giving through text messaging. But you know, if, if you're not dealing with a crisis like that, I, I would tell you that you, know, you should each have uh, the capacity to accept a gift online. Uh, but don't expect it to replace the other forms of philanthropy right now. I would still do the, the snail mail if I were you. When I was uh, doing academy philanthropy, we would get 10 to 15 percent response rate on our direct mail appeals. And that's why I know you guys will do well on direct mail too, because you have a, a real niche. The people that you're communicating with, you know that they're either Adventist or they have a strong affinity to what you're doing already. I mean, they're highly interested in what you're doing, so your response rate's gonna be higher than most direct mail. But again, someone like um, Red Cross or American Cancer Society, if they get a, a half percent rate return on a direct mail appeal, they're thrilled. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, that, and that's just how, how things work. So um, there, are, there are firms that do phone programs too. If you have, um, I would say if you have more than 2,000 records, you probably ought to think about uh, hiring someone to do your phoning for you. And they can, they can do a very effective job of it. Uh, think of the Andrews, they had a phone center for a while and they would do phoning for people and you'd actually have Avendus making phone calls for, to Avendus so that you know, we have our own lingo and we're, you know, you know what I mean. So we're political campaign in California did it. They, instead of setting up a phone room, all wired, it was all done with cell phones. You'd walk in, they'd give you a list and you'd pull a cell phone out of a bucket. Hmm. Yeah, uh, he's talking about how they do a cell phone solicitation. Uh, cell phone companies sometimes, if you, it, it depends on what your relationship is with your vendors in your community. But sometimes cell phone companies will loan you cell phones to do uh, phone-a-thons. So if you, can, if you can get your own group of callers together, sometimes you can get someone to donate the call centers or the phones for the calling purpose. So um, I'm gonna, this one, this slide talks about how monthly growing, uh, how monthly programs, it's a growing trend, in other words, People who give monthly to an organization tend to give more in a year than people who give once or twice a year. So it benefits you to, uh, to develop those programs where you're asking people to give on a month-to-month -month basis rather than just one gift during the year. So try to put that as an option, especially with your electronic giving capacities. Uh, try to ask people to make recurring gifts. Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with this because I have quite a few more slides. Um, the next level is major gifts and major gifts has to do with making a personal connection with the organization. Well, what happens uh, with, with your annual giving program is, is that, I'll give you an illustration. Um, if you've been asking people to give every year and you get someone who gives you a hundred dollars every year 
Well, what happens is, is that after five years, they're going to have given you $500, all right? And you may, you may do a search in your database for everyone who's given $500 to our, our ministry in the past and above. And so they're going to they're gonna filter out of that database as people who, can, who have a real interest in what you're doing. And so then you take those people who are $500 a year donors, and then you talk to them on a personal basis and find out you know, find out something more about them. In fact, you might just start out by just picking up a phone and say, listen, you know, I, I am in charge of uh, the giving program here at this ministry. And I see that over the last five years, you've given over $500 to the ministry. And I'm just calling to say thank you. And that's all you want to do. You just want to get them on the phone and say thank you to them and then let them talk about what their impressions are about the ministry. And a lot of times those people will express, you know, where they are at in life in terms of their giving. And some people will tell you, you know, I'd love to be able to do more. And some people will say, come see me sometime. And, you know, some people, as a result of that phone call, by just getting a thank you and telling how much a difference the giving has made, those people will increase their giving. But another, another thing that happens is, is if you get a whole group of people who are giving $500 or more over the past few years, and they're all in a one geographical area, it makes sense for you to take that list and go visit those people to thank them in person and get to know them a little bit more and find out you know, what makes them tick, what their interests are, why are they giving to the ministry, why do they identify with this ministry so much. Um, and another thing is, is that um, if you send out a direct mail appeal and you get a $1,000 check, does that make you sit up at all? It wouldn't me. In fact, in fact um, most of you should have a policy that says that anytime you get a gift from anybody, that you will call and thank them for the gift or have someone call them. Kind of and really intensifies the stewardship level. In other words, you know, if you, can't, if you can't afford to call every gift, say you call everyone who gives $50 or more and, and call all those people and thank them for their gift. And that's a good way to get them to renew again the next year. And it also helps you to, to, um, you know, to grow their, their giving. If you have someone who, uh, if you write a direct mail appeal and they send you a $1,000 check, First of all, you should get on the phone and thank them. Secondly, they should be on your radar screen. If they can give you $1,000 as a result of a direct mail appeal, well, you found out a lot of different things about them. Number one is they have the capacity to give a lot more than that. They have a real love and interest in what you're doing, and they would probably have the ability to do a lot more than that. So it behooves you to start thinking of them in terms of a major gift prospect. Anyways, major gifts, it involves a one-to-one -one contact and a long-term inv involvement. And you usually ask for a specific financial investment detailed in a proposal in person. So um, think of a, about a triangle. <coughs> um, and basically, the um, way, way I've always heard this described is, is how do you determine whether someone is a major gift prospect or not? It, it should be whether there's a link to your organization, whether they have the ability to give, and whether there's an interest in what you're doing. It has to be all three. Occasionally you can get away with two, but 
but generally all three of those. I've seen a lot of people who have identified people who are very wealthy and they want them to be a major gift owner to their organization and they think that because someone is wealthy and that they have money that they'll give to your organization. And I'm here, just here to tell you that that's just simply not true. Um, if, it just doesn't work that way. You know, remember how we started this out? Is that there's a one and a half million ministries or organizations people can give to? Most of us in this room are probably given to five to ten different organizations ourselves. And if you're really wealthy, you're probably giving to 20 or 30 different organizations every year. So remember, just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean that they're going to give a gift to you. And that's why it's important for you to figure out how are they linked to your organization? Have they ever attended an event? Have they ever made a gift to you? Have they been a, a direct recipient of your services in the past? Have they gone on a mission trip with you? How are, how are they linked to your organization? You have to ask yourself some very, very um, hard questions. How are they linked to us? Do they have the ability to give and are they really interested in what we're doing? And if you can find all three of those things, if you can get all three corners of that pyramid, then you can, you can figure out whether they can give to you or not, and then you start building that relationship. And once you start to go visit those people, they'll tell you right off the bat whether they have an interest in what you're doing or not. And if they don't have an interest in what you're doing, you know, maybe they need more cultivation, maybe they need a little bit more information, maybe they just need more time, but they might not ever turn in to be a, a major donor. Um, think about who um, your constituency is. Now, we are, uh, I thought I was describing earlier about these circles. And what I, what I like to describe this as the rock and the pond principle. And that is, is if you took a big rock and you stood at the edge of the pond and you toss it out in the middle, what happens when it hits the water? You get a big splash, okay? And what happens to the rings as it goes outside? They get, they get smaller and smaller and smaller until the outside. And I will tell you that it takes, you should take a little bit of time to think about who your donors will be and what your expectations are of the different groups. Most of us in this, or, in this circle here, this should be our board. These should be our, our biggest fans and biggest supporters, or should be our board members. But outside of that, you need to think about who who are going to be in the next circle and who's going to be in the next concentric circle in terms of interest and support and, and ability. A lot of times that has to do with staff and other people who are receiving your services. Um, at the academy level or the college level, this is where alumni would be. And then you have the conference, um, people who live in that conference. And then you think about people who live in the North American division and then you might think about foundations and corporations. Because most of you guys are at a very um, very ministerial driven, you're going to ver find very few foundations and corporations that will invest in what you're doing. I uh, visited a, a school one time and they said we had a, a campaign where we're soliciting businesses to give to our school and we've asked 40 businesses for gifts and we've not received any. And they were surprised. 
And the, the problem was they didn't do business with any of them. You know, businesses, they tend to give on a quid pro quo basis. You know, they want to, if they're going to give to you, they're gonna, they want to know what they're going to get back out of the relationship. So if you're going to go ask businesses for gifts just because you think those businesses have a lot of money and the capacity to give, you're wrong. In fact, in the United States, businesses only give around 5 to 6% five to of all the gifts that are given. Foundations only give about 10, per, 10 to 15% of all the gifts that are given. Most of the money that's given in the United States happens to come from private individuals, not from foundations or corporations. So everybody here in this room comes from a different organization and your, your circle is going to be different than the guy or the person sitting next to you. So you need to figure out who are the people that are going to be able to support us first and focus your, your efforts in those areas. All right, start, start fundraising by closest to home. In other words, think about that circle. The closest one should be your volunteers, your staff and associates, uh, students, clients, patients, ven uh, church members, vendors, and the community at large. Think about how those different organizations and, and groups fit into that circle and then start, start when you start your fundraising, start where your chances are the best and then proceed out from there. If you have more time and budget, then try to some of those other groups. But it could be that you could raise all of the money that you need with the areas you know, from these first three circles and then don't, don't worry about the other ones because you might have it all, all taken care of. Other suggestions for success. Um, here are six documents that you really need to have in your possession if you're going to have a, a, a good fundraising program. First of all, you need a good mission statement that tells who you are more than what you do. It tells what kind of a, uh, why do you exist? What is it you're doing to make a difference? And it should, it should be very simple. It should be not more than two or three sentences. And remember that people give because they believe in the mission of your organization. That's why they're, they're going to give to your organization. Secondly is, is that have a vision statement. Tell about uh, where you want to be in the future. And remember, fundraising is more about the future than anything else. Um, this is your dream and this is what you want to accomplish. People like to accomplish the impossible. So talk about where you want to be and what you're going to accomplish. So have a, a mission statement and a vision statement. Third thing is have a long-range plan. Work with your board and your staff to develop a plan together. In other words, sit down and talk about what are the things that your board feels like are, are the most important to the future of your organization and write those things down and write down a plan about how you're going to accomplish those things. Uh, make sure that you cover uh, all the different aspects, in other words, what kind of programs you need to operate, what kind of finances, whether you need facilities for those programs, uh, what kind of marketing and fundraising do you want to do, and what kind of staffing are you going to need to do to accomplish the things that are part of your long-range vision. Um, also, make sure your plan includes goals and objectives and strategies to meet those goals. Don't just write down goals and objectives. Make sure you have strategies and you should include some type of a process for evaluation. How are you going to measure whether you achieved what you said you're going to achieve? 
Fourth thing that you need is a detailed annual development plan. Write down what it is that you want to do for the next year in, in terms of development. Do you want to do a phonathon? Do you want to do a direct mail appeal? Do you want to do two direct mail appeals? Do you want to solicit 10 donors? Do you want to solicit uh, 100 donors? Um, have a plan and have goals and write them down. Make sure that they're realistic. You should have also dollars that you want to raise and also have non-monetary goals like the, the number of visits that you want to make. Um, have specific dates for all tasks. Um, the fifth thing that you need is a case for support. The case support tells people why they should give to your organization. It tells why your organization is qualified to meet, it, uh, meet your, your mission and it tells how their gift's going to make a difference. Um, I'm going to share with you a sample uh, case statement. Um, you need to be inspirational and paint the vision, but be realistic. This is one that we wrote just brainstorming several years ago with a group. But this one says, uh, will you put your child to bed tonight for the last time? Some will. The Butterfly Foundation is a hospice for children providing accommodations during these last painful days. Your support can help a child spread their wings. Theologically, it's you know not in line with you know what each of us believe, but you know if you look at it in a in a different way, it helps people to see that you're serving children, and that you're helping. And all of us can can relate to the pain that a child might feel. I mean, we've all been parents. We've all had children who were sick. Uh, very few people have children who have uh, died and have had to go to a hospice. But think about if you're going to describe your case for support to the public at large, you want to describe it in terms that they can understand that what kind of a difference their gifts are going to make to your organization or to the world. Um, whether you're um, you know, doing literature evangelism, whether you're ministering to people who are out in the Pacific, in a Pacific Island group, whether you're in Africa, whatever you happen to be doing, try to, to describe it in such a way that people can kind of sense and feel how critical it is that you're doing what you're doing and that it can't get accomplished in any other way. Six, have a, a gift acceptance policy. In other words, what type of gifts do you accept? Some of you might say you accept all types of gifts, but that's probably not true. Would you take a Winnebago? Maybe not. Would you take money from uh, a tobacco company? Probably not. You know, there's some gifts that just aren't gifts. I mean, you don't want to take everything. But you need to have a gift acceptance policy. If you want a gift acceptance policy and want to see what they look like, type gift acceptance policy into Google, and you'll come out with about 5,000 of them in 30 seconds. Who will you accept the gifts from? How will the gifts be used? What type of recognition is given? In other words, you should have a recognition plan. You should write down that, for instance, we call everybody, who, call, who calls people at the $50 gift and who calls people at the $100 gift level and who calls the $1,000 donors? Um, if someone sends you a $500 check, do you drop a book in the mail? Uh, what is your policy in terms of how, how quickly do you respond 
to a, to a gift. Uh, you should have a policy that says that every time someone sends a gift, you send them a receipt within 48 hours. So. <laughs> as soon as the check clears. Have you had some problems with that before? <laughs> no, but you asked when, I'm saying. Uh, I don't know, man. I'd call them right away because then if it bounced and they're going to feel bad and they might give you more money. Um, I'll tell you a, a great story that I read in Contributions magazine a, a couple years ago. It's a story that Jerry Panis told. And uh, it's about uh, Scripps Medical Center in La Jolla. Have you heard of Scripps before? A lot of you have. But they did an acquisition mailing. They purchased 35,000 addresses. And they mailed out this letter to 35,000 people, strangers, okay? They didn't know any of these people, but they sent it out. And they got a, a gift for $150. And so their policy was that anybody who gave $50 or more got a thank you call. And so that, that night, the director of development, it was his job to call everybody. So he, he calls this guy and he says, listen, uh, we got your check for $150 and I want to tell you how we're going to use that money. Uh, we're going to use it this way. And there was complete silence on the other side of the, the phone. The guy says, well, nobody's ever called me before and thanked me for a gift. In fact, I've given a lot more to other organizations and I've never been thanked. And he says, thank you for your call, I appreciate it. And so that was the end of the phone call. But a couple days later, they got a check for $10,000 in the mail. So guess what, I mean, they called him again. <laughs> we, got your, we got your check. We'd like to meet you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they, they, went, they went and saw the guy, and at the end of the year, he gave him a $25,000 check. And it doesn't, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something else in just a second. But at the end of the year, he gave twenty five, and the next year, he gave $100,000, and then he gave 750000 the year after, then one and a half, and then $2 million in, in the following two years, and the last gift he gave the scripts was $100 million. I'll tell you what, it is highly unlikely that that's going to happen to you. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, and I swear on this, and that is, is that if you start calling people when they send you a check, and you thank them, and you thank them and tell them exactly what you're going to do with the money and how much you appreciate it, and how much uh, their gift is appreciated and how you're going to use it, those people will give, give again. I remember I, I took that article and I mailed it out to these uh, 20 academies. We were working in a special program and I mailed it out to these directors of development and they read it. And uh, this one director of development, uh, she called me, she said, I read your article and I got a check that day for $1,000. And, and uh, so I said, well, I'm gonna do what the article said. And she goes, you know what happened? She goes, I called them and I said thank you and then they sent me a check for $2,000. And I started getting phone calls from all these different people at the academies who were making these phone calls and they were getting checks right there on the spot too as a result of the, result of the phone calls. Now the, only, the point of that is, is that you're probably not going to stumble into the, the $100 million donor. But the point is, is that people want to know that their gifts make a difference and that they, that, first of all, people want to know if, they, if you got the check. 
and they want to be appreciated. Everybody wants to be appreciated because we only have so much money we can give away. And if you have somebody who's calling people and thanking them, then you're, you're ahead of everybody else. So have a policy for that. All right, I want to talk to you just for the last few minutes about uh, leadership. And this is probably uh, one of the most important things that you can do for fundraising for your organization is to think about leadership. Um, the organization's ability to raise money is always, almost always in direct proportion to the quality and dedication of its leadership. And question? Nope. Uh-uh. It can be from a volunteer. You can have students call. At the university where I'm at, we have students call, thank donors. Sometimes it's more meaningful. What about the person who wants to remain anonymous, but yet you want to thank him? Well, you, I mean, you'd have to handle that very carefully. Yeah. Yeah. She calls calling people who want to remain anonymous. So you can still call them and just say, well, we won't recognize you in our publications and you know your gift is confidential but I still wanted to call and say thank you so anyways when I talk about the dedication of its leadership and the quality of the leadership I'm not really I mean there's there's a lot of different levels of leadership and what I really want to talk about is is your boards uh, we had a presentation earlier on uh, leadership as a CEO now that, that has a huge influence as well, but I want to talk about boards. Uh, people who have the fire of leadership burning within their souls and have that deep commitment to the organization's mission will drive any program through to success. And this is a quote from Hank Rosso. Uh, some of you might want to know a good book to read on philanthropy, and it's written by Hank Rosso, or look for it under Henry Rosso. It's called Achieving Excellence. And you can get it at Amazon.com and you can buy it for five or ten dollars. But it's probably the best book that was ever written on fundraising as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's called Achieving Excellence, Henry Rosso. He started Indiana University's fundraising school. And uh, Indiana University has a fundraising school kind of like a school of business, school of education. They have a school of fundraising. So anyways, a great book. Let's talk about it. How do, you, uh, how do you have a good board and or a development committee? Um, and this session is not long enough to talk about all the different things that go into to building a good board and board management. Some of those things are days long. But basically, you need to find people on your board who are gonna give one of three things, work, wealth, and wisdom, or all three actually. So um, I'm familiar enough with Adventist organizations to know how dysfunctional we are in this regard. <laughs> it's very discouraging. Well, could be all three. All three. <laughs> I mean, a lot of you see a lot of people on our boards who are willing to serve because they were asked. And I don't know how many of you have ever been asked to serve on a board, but you're not sure quite how you got there or why you're there and. Why would they choose you? And uh, in a perfect world, you should be recruited onto a board, and it should because you have a real huge interest in this particular organization, 
and that you've been told right up front that we want you to do these things, we want you to give this amount, and the wisdom that you bring to the board should be aligned with the organization's mission and, and vision and that type of things. In other words, recruitment of board members should be very strategic. If you find yourself hamstruck by a board structure um, inflicted upon you because of church, the church leadership or whatever, um, try, to, try to create a committee that doesn't necessarily act uh, directly responsible to the, the, the greater church organization, but create a development committee or some type of a leadership committee that you can put onto that committee, whoever you'd like to put onto it, but basically you're recruiting those people because they have a huge interest in what you're doing and they don't mind adding some work and some wealth and some wisdom. They'll, they'll tackle things for you because they have a, a passion. So find people who can um, do all three. You can settle for two of the three, but, but I wouldn't if I were you. So have a job description. So get your board involved. Anytime you want to raise money, uh, the board needs to be inspired. One of your goals for fundraising is, is that your board should have 100% giving every year to your organization. A lot of organizations, they have a minimum board, board gift, and that's a question I get all the time. If you can get away with it, I'd, I would have a minimum board gift. In your organization, you may not be able to have it. And in our board that I'm working with, uh, we have a minimum of $1,000 gift. But there's, there's an organization here in Florida that has a million dollar annual gift requirement. And, and they have people lining up wanting to serve on that board. Find board members that use their influence and affluence, uh, have a board retreat, and then work with your board members for support. That's where, that's where most of your energy as a CEO should be spent is, is working with your board to help them to rise to the leadership level to help give you additional help to get things done. All right, I have uh, 10 key strategies that I said that I advertised that we would talk about, and we've covered most of these, but I'm gonna just touch on them. First of all, is develop an annual fund. Decide to go back and start writing a direct mail appeal to your supporters. And when you write the letter, let me, let me tell you, ask for something specific. Don't just say, would you give? Ask them to give a certain amount. If you don't believe that works, ask them to give $52.73, and you'll get back checks for $52.73. But ask people to do something specific. Don't just say, would you give us a gift? Be bold, tell people exactly what you want them to do. In your, in your direct mail appeals, tell stories. And, and talk about how lives have been changed. And uh, I don't have a rule for whether it should be one, two, or three pages. There's a, there's a huge amount of debate about whether it, it should be one, two, or three pages. Uh, the, the general rule of thumb is, is the longer the letter. Well, they're less likely to read it, but the, there's some indication that if they do read it, they're going to give a bigger gift. So it depends on the audience. So I'm not going to tell you there's a rule, but I would say 
try different things. Don't just try one thing. Try different things as you do direct mail appeals. But tell stories, ask for something specific, say thank you, use a PS. People are typically going to read the first line of your letter and they're going to read your PS first. Okay? So I always do another ask at the end. And, and my first line is always, I'm, I'm writing to ask you today for your support for our ministry. I mean, I'm, I'm right off the bat, I'm, there's no secrets. So, so make sure you ask them for something specifically in your direct mail appeals. I would, I would also ask you to think about your annual fund is try to do a phone-a-thon. If you've never done one, try to do that. They're really a lot of fun. Remember when I was at Platte Valley Academy, I used to take 10 students to Union College and we'd go up to their boardroom and we'd line the kids up and I did a phone-a-thon training and, and uh, the kids made all the calls and we were raising a, a lot of money. But I remember one time I had a kid, this girl, she takes the phone, she's holding it against her chest like this and she goes, Mr. Turpin, this lady says she's not gonna give a gift if you're still the principal. What am I supposed to tell her? <laughs> <laughs> so, that was pretty funny. So, <laughs> isn't that a hoot? So you can't take that kind of stuff personally, but you know, I'll just tell you that on the annual fund, it, it is expensive, but you've got to do it if you want to find out where your donors are, and it, and you need to budget accordingly. So then the next thing I will tell you is, is uh, seek some major gifts. Um, there's a lot of great books out there on major gift fundraising. Um, I would look for um, something uh, written by um, uh, Gerald Panas, P-A-N-A-S. Um, the, very, the very best book on major gifts is written by a gentleman named uh, William Sturtevant. I should write that down. <clears throat> and the book is called Seize the opportunity. I hate writing up front because I get nervous, like I'm gonna misspell something, but anyways, and the other one is this. If you guys ever want, um, actually that's not the name of the book. I just, it just came to me. Uh, Yeah, it's, yeah. Huh? Amazon. Oh, it's Artful Journey. That's right. <laughs> All right. Seize the Opportunity is a uh, two-day seminar that Jerry Panis and Bill Sturdivant do together. And... Um,
Jerry Panis and Bill Sturdivant do a seminar called Seize the Opportunity if you want to learn to do major gifts. It's probably the very best thing I've ever attended. I've, I've, I've um, attended it two or three times and I've purchased their class and used it for other groups and uh, hands down the best thing in major gifts I've ever seen. Uh, the Artful Journey, the, the art, Artful Journey. Last time I talked to Bill, he was at uh, the University of Illinois up in Champaign, and I said, well, what are you doing now? And he says, well, I work on $5 million gifts and above. That's all he does. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, and he's busy. So, But anyways, if you want to learn more about Major Gifts, go to that seminar. Uh, Read the Artful Journey is a great book, and then Jerry Panis has a, a handful of great books on fundraising. Uh, anything that Jerry writes is really pretty good. Um, you, uh, there is a moral code in fundraising, and that is that it's really wrong for you to ask anybody to give a gift if you haven't written the first check first. So. It's like standing up at the church and calling for the offering, but you're not giving yourself. So write the first check. Even if it isn't what you want to do, write a check and then do it. I mean, I, uh, I write, when I took the job at University of Texas, I gave a gift before I showed up, then I signed up for the monthly giving program. So those of you who have that capacity, try to get all your employees to give. In fact, uh, one of my first campaigns when I arrived there is to work with the advancement office and said, listen, we can't go out and ask people to give if you guys aren't giving. I only had two out of about 15 people that were giving. So we, my first goal was to get 100% of my staff to give and they, they are all giving now. Um, conduct internal campaigns first. Remember that in fundraising, what works best in fundraising is, is you work from the inside of your circle first. Start with the, the most likely people and they should be your board members. So you do a board campaign and your staff campaign first. So for instance, if you need to raise a half a million or a million dollars for a project, don't go ask anybody for a gift until you've asked for the people who are closest to the organization to give. Remember, if you're going to do a campaign, you should do it on many different levels. You should have different goals and different, for different groups. But always start with the, the people who are closest to your organization first. And then work, work out. But it, you shouldn't... When I was a, a chairman of an elementary school board, they wanted to have a capital campaign. And I, and I said, as, the, as a chair, I said, well, first of all, I'm not going to let you vote to have this campaign unless you all agree to give to it first. Because I didn't want to see us as a board going out of that room where we weren't unified. And so they said, all right, we all agree, we'll all give to it. And then we voted that we would have the camp capital campaign. And I didn't say how much, but the point was, because some people were on that board and they, had, they didn't have the ability to give, but you need the moral support of a unified group of people all aligned behind one project. So get that board to give. I, had, I remember in that campaign I had one uh, mother, she was divorced and she was raising these kids and she, she was the last person and the principal said, you know, we, I, I usually ask the principal, how are we doing? She goes, well, we have one person left. And I said, well, who's that? And I, I said, well, I'll go talk to her. Because 
you know, I'm a volunteer and this lady that was on our board was a volunteer and I said, you know, you really need to give. I said, you know, you voted that you would give and we need 100% and if, unless you give. And she goes, well, I have these two kids and they're in the school and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and finally she wrote us a check for $25 and I thought this was a great victory. And then about next month she bought a new car. So I didn't, you know, I didn't feel so bad after that. I felt like I twisted her arm a little bit, but you know, you need some moral victories along the way. So get your staff and your board to give first. Start with your internal campaigns first. Uh, create advisory boards for your organization. The advisory boards will serve as, as people that you can get advice from, but they also another source of giving to your organization. So create some advisory boards. Um, have your board campaign and then and then when you raise money um, seek your large gifts first and live by the 90-10 rule. Remember that um, in fundraising 90% of your money is going to come from 10% of your people. So you have 100 people and you have a campaign you're going to get most of your money from your campaign from 10 people. So you always work on, on those first 10 people first. Um, I'm telling, this, this isn't going to get back to University of Texas at Brownsville. But we have a $6 million capital campaign and our lead gift for a $6 million campaign should have been somewhere around $1.2 million. Well, we never got that, we never got that gift and we accepted a gift for $50,000. Guess, guess how many gifts we've gotten, you know, above $50,000? Very few. I mean, I'll just tell you, we don't have time. We only have one $250,000 gift, but all the other gifts are $50,000 and, and lower. And we've only raised around $2 million. And that's because we didn't focus in on our large gifts first. And this, this turned out to be our ceiling. Everybody else is saying, well, this doctor here who brings in a million dollars or makes a million dollars a year, he gave $50,000. So the other donors in the community are saying if he gave $50,000, that's where I'm going to give. So this, is, this turned out to be our ceiling in our capital campaign. You know how many $50,000 gifts you have to raise to get $6.2 million? How many, Randy? Huh? A lot. A lot. There aren't, there aren't that many people out there. So if you're going to do a capital campaign, always live by the 90-10 rule and use a gift range chart. How many of you know what a gift range chart is? A few of you, but you can find that on the internet too. Type it in Google. Uh, you can go to a, a website called um, blackbod.com. It's a software company that helps manage databases for donors. I'll show you what a gift range chart looks like. For a $100,000 uh, campaign, a gift range chart says that your lead, your, you need one lead gift, you have three prospects. Um, this is gifts, prospects, size, and total. So when you go out and raise $100,000, you need one gift, you need three prospects, and you probably ought to get, um, let's say, a $15,000 gift. And that gives you 15.
So when I say three prospects, that means you need to have a list of three people you're going to go ask for $15,000 to get that one. And then the next thing is you might need two, two gifts, you need, might need six prospects who can give you $10,000. And that's going to give you a total of thirty-five. And then it just kind of builds its way down. Now you might say I need, um, say five, uh, you need uh, maybe ten names, ten prospects, and the next ones are, are $7,500. And then you need maybe ten $5,000 gifts. And that's another, well I'm doing this wrong, but you, need, you maybe need twenty prospects, you need $5,000 here. And that's going to give you more. But you can see that you can't take $100,000 and just divide it up and say we need uh, $100,000, $1,000 gifts. It really doesn't work that way. That's not how the money in our society is divided up. In our, in our country, and even in our church, most of the money is with 5% of the population. So if you want to raise money for $100,000, you need to ask three people for $15,000 hoping that you'll get you know a total of 15 and right because not everybody you ask for $15,000 is going to be able to come in at 15,000 so, you know, and how do you know whether someone can give you a $15,000 gift? How would you guess? Well, that kind of information comes from the annual fund and from the relationship building that you've been doing along the way. Um, a, a rule of thumb is, in this regard, is, is that people for a capital campaign will generally give about 10 times what they normally give in the annual fund. So if you have a, a family that's giving you $1,000 a year towards your ministry for a special effort every three or four years, they might be able to give you a ten dollars to $15,000 gift. That makes sense. Remember, that's the importance of the annual fund. It gives you information about your donors, about their capacity to give, their interest, what they like to, to give to. Um, I messed up. Uh, this $5,000 goes over here. But basically, you can't have a one-to-one. -one. In other words, if you're going to create a, a useful gift range chart, you can't say, I need one gift, one prospect to give $15,000. That's a recipe for disaster in your, in your campaign because you, you, you're not going to be able to ask one person for $15,000 and get it always. It's rare that you would get it. So you need to have more people lined up to uh, give those gifts than just the one-to-one. Can you use this for a, um, a, a special campaign like Capital, or do you use this annually? You can use it for both. Okay. Yeah, you should use it for both, but they're constructed differently. In other words, the, the uh, major gift campaign for a, uh, the Capital campaign uh, chart is more top-heavy. Um, sometimes in capital campaigns nowadays, they raise all their, 
their money for a capital campaign from, from the top half of the chart. In other words, um, it's possible that if you are, had a good enough database and a good enough uh, relationship with people and enough wealth out there that remember the size of gifts, we went from, from 7,500 7, to 5,000, then you might go to 2,500, then you might go to 1,000, then you go to 500. Well, what happens if you get all the money raised from here, from here up? You raise your goal. In a lot of places, they'll, they'll increase their goal because they were so successful. They'll broaden their mission, their, their vision for their capital campaign. You know, you were gonna you were gonna reach um, ten neighborhoods in Denver with this uh, evangelistic effort. Now, because of our increased capital campaign goal, we can reach uh, 25 neighborhoods. You know, it's it's valid, and it happens all the time. What's the name of the software program? Um, it, I think it's Blackbaud. But um, you could type in the internet gift range chart, and they and what happens is is that they'll come up a, a formula, and you can type in what I want to raise, and you hit enter, and it tells you the, the size of gifts you need to reach, reach your campaign. The biggest mistake that I see a lot of newcomers to fundraising do is that they'll say we need a hundred thousand, so I'm going to go out and raise ten ten thousand dollar gifts. And it, it usually doesn't work that way. I know uh, Ed Reed's you know, in charge of stewardship for the division. We work door to door for years next to each other. And I said that in the meeting one time when he was right, he was in the room and he, said, he stopped me afterwards. Well, it worked for me. <laughs> and he, he, he raised money. What's the name of the camp in Tennessee? Cotta Springs. Yeah, he headed that capital campaign and he went out and asked everybody to give $5,000 gifts. And it worked. I think he raised a million dollars. It's rare. But let me, let me tell you one thing, that, that he got $5,000 gifts from people who could easily have given a million. So remember, when you ask people for gifts, you don't ask everybody for the same amount of money. You ask them for a gift commensurate with their ability to give. Give them that dignity. That you're not going to approach somebody who has the capacity to give you a million dollar gift and you're going to ask them for $500. And then you're going to go to your friend who's you know, struggling and you're going to ask them for $250. It's just not right. <laughs> ask people for, remember, on all your campaigns ask for your big gifts first because that's going to inspire people to give. A little gift is not going to inspire anybody to give anything. But a big gift is going to inspire everybody to get on board because if the most intelligent and brightest person in your organization is giving a large gift, then other people are tend to follow along and give as well. And you ask for people to give at whatever they can give. <laughs> well, 
Well, I mean, it, it could be that they need more cultivation and they need more time to think about it. So, and it, it, and it could be that you're talking to somebody who truly doesn't have the capacity to give more, or they may not have the interest level in your organization that you thought that they may have. So. No. No, it's, it's really considered unethical, actually. And let me like, explain to you why. If I came to you and said, uh, would you give us $10,000 for scholarships for the academy for this year? And then you say to me, well, what do you get out of it? And I say, well, I, I get 20%. <laughs> and I thought I was going to give 10000 that would go directly to the kids. So, I mean, and here, here's the psychology is, is that philanthropy has to be a budgeted item and the people who are raising the money from you should be a part of your ministry just like you are. In other words, you don't get paid for every soul that is baptized or every church that's raised. You get paid based on, you know, offerings to the organization. You get a set salary and that's how fundraisers should be paid too. So you can, you can farm different segments out to things, but fundraisers are paid either on a salary or on a per day basis. If you wanna hire a consultant to help you raise money, then they would work on a per day basis. If you wanna hire someone for a salary, they would make a, a salary just like everybody else in the organization, like the CEO or the, the treasurer or the accountant or whoever. It's, it's, it's viewed as an administrative expensive expense. I've actually heard of some people that have tried this in the Adventist church and it just creates a huge amount of uh, problems for an organization. What size of an annual income would you say a nonprofit should have in order to justify hiring a full-time Well, that's a great question. Uh, do you hear that? What, what kind of a size of nonprofit do you need to have to justify a fundraiser? Well, I mean, I would say that you're going to at least need a million dollars a year budget, organizational budget, at a minimum, to do that. But other, but, but if you're the CEO of your nonprofit right now, you should be educating yourself about how to do this business. I mean, send yourself to the fundraising school or read a book or whatever. Remember, I, I had 47% of my alumni giving at Platte Valley, and I was the principal. We didn't have, we couldn't afford a director of development. And I used my secretary, I used my treasurer, I used my students. I mean, we did what we could to, to make it happen. So figure out how to get it done, but you should start doing something that's strategic and organized and keeping a good database and start someplace and then hopefully you can start growing things over time. So great question. Uh, use the gift range chart. Uh, if I were you folks, I would look into social media and get into that if you could. It's a great way to communicate. Even Facebook, you can ask for gifts on Facebook. Uh, Twitter can uh, communicate urgent needs and it can communicate what your mission is. And then uh, talk about planned giving in all your newsletters. Talk about that your, your organization is interested in their will or would you remember us in your will or in your estate? That should be in a box or in a story in every single publication that you come out with. 
And uh, at a minimum, if they get a call and you don't know what to do with it, call your conference uh, attorney or conference office and they have planned giving services. A lot of them are very friendly to supporting ministries as well. And, and uh, just try to remind people that you'd be interested in that. So you had a hand up? What's my email? Last slide. I gave you two. Uh, it's Ken Turpin Sr. And there's no eyes in Turpin, so at gmail.com. If you, uh, it, I enjoy staying connected with the Adventist Church. I, I'm, one of, I'm a lay person now, and I worked for the church for 25 years. But if it, if you any of you want to contact me and and uh, talk or have, have general questions, I'm willing to talk. I don't do consulting. I, I might do weekend board retreats and stuff like that, but I don't do any fundraising consulting. If you need fundraising therapy, you can contact me. So, so yeah. And, and if you have a card, uh, want to give it to me, I'll email a copy of the presentation to you, or you can email me and remind me to send it to you, and I have business cards. Um, we did pass out uh, session evaluation forms. I would appreciate it if you'd fill those out and um, that way I have an idea whether we hit the mark or not today. But uh, any other questions? Thank you, appreciate it. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.